Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up? Ah, what a team we have tonight. I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chumenchu and the wonderful producer, Crystal Nora. Crystal, how's it going? Ah, I matched for fellowship. I'm so excited. Keep going on, Group Siders. Incredible. Uh, Congratulations to you. To anyone else out there who matched or didn't, uh, we love you and hope uh, everyone is doing well in this major transition. It's a very exciting time in medicine. Um, But speaking of transitions... We had a great episode tonight. Our guest tonight, Dr. Ignacio Tapia, uh, here to discuss obstructive sleep apnea. But before we go into that topic, hey, Chris, can you tell us about the show? Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer linking questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Ignacio Tapia. He's the Division Chief of Pediatric Pulmonary Medicine for the University of Miami Health System and Jackson Health System. His main research interests are the pathophysiology and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea in children. He teaches us about the risk factors, screening, diagnosis, and the treatment of OSA. And why when Chris's children kick him in the face, it might be because they need more iron. You won't want to sleep through this conversation about OSA. Dr. Ignacio Tapia, welcome to the Cribsiders. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, we're a pretty informal group. We call everyone by their first name. I hope that's okay. Is it okay if we call Perfect. you Ignacio? Beautiful. You you can call us anything, first name or uh, <laughs> if we get a nickname by the end of the episode, that works. Bud. Um, Bud. <laughs> yeah. yeah well. Tiger. Um, <laughs> we would love to get to know you a little bit better and our audience would love to get to know you a little bit better. And so can you just give kind of a brief introduction, you know, maybe kind of like a one-liner to our audience to say who you are and maybe something that you're interested in outside of medicine? Yeah, absolutely. So actually I was born and raised in Southern Chile. I went to med school there and then I moved to Santiago, the capital of Chile to do a residency in pediatrics. And after that, I moved to the United States, to Philadelphia to do fellowship in pediatric pulmonology, which at that time you could, having trained somewhere else. And when I finished, then I decided, actually I had to either go back home or if I wanted to stay here, I had to do two years of pediatrics residency to be board eligible. Mm -hmm. So I selected that one and I did two years of pediatric residency. And after that, I sat for every board on earth and I began... (laughs) I became an attending uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I trained triple certified in pediatrics, uh, pediatric pulmonology, and sleep medicine. And right now, recently in July, after considering the years of training and attending like 16, 7 years in Philadelphia, the only city I have lived in to that point in the U.S., I moved to Miami and I became the division chief of the division of pediatric pulmonology at the University of Miami. So it's an entire change for my family and it's been great. That's amazing. And like what amount of training I'm sure you have gone. I bet I bet pediatric residency training was like very, very easy for you after after <laughs> all the, the, the work. Um, but uh, Santiago is an amazing city. Um, where I, I've been because I did what um, a lot of millennials do and have an existential crisis and go hike Machu Picchu. Um, what a beautiful uh, part of the country. Yeah, absolutely. You need to go to Southern yeah. Chile. Yeah, it was wonderful. Chris, Crystal, one of you have a question? I'm thinking you go, Crystal. Um, so one question that I do have is what was the last best thing that you ate? Like a meal that really sticks out in your mind. Well, actually, we cook at home. So <laughs> it may have been something really recently. Uh, we do homemade pasta, homemade pizza, and all that sort of stuff. So here we're going to a farmer market, and you know that Miami is tropical. So in the wintertime, you get a lot of the produce that you could get in Philadelphia or in Baltimore in the spring. So now is the time of tomatoes, kale, and all that sort of stuff. And I, we did homemade pasta fettuccine with kale in the dough with a sauce of fresh tomato and cremini mushrooms. It was amazing. Oh, 
Wow. I wish I ate dinner before this. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really hungry too. So I'm with you. The question I often ask is, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received either as a learner or, or learned somewhere else? As a learner, I didn't receive this piece of advice. It's something that I learned myself was to approach learning from a fearless perspective. Because it's very daunting when you go to an intense academic institution, for example, such as the case of Hopkins or something like that, and you look all these accomplished people or you're just starting, you think, I will never like be able to do it. It's so much effort and et cetera, et cetera. But then I learned that you need to take one step at a time and you're going to get what you're going to get if you're driven by passion. That's what matters. And to do stuff that are really important to your heart. I, I Yeah, I love that so much. I feel like there's like a certain aspect of just like trusting the process, keep yeah. pushing forward and doing uh, doing what you love. And in the process, because nobody was born an adult. Nobody was born a physician or whatever. It's a process. So you go through the process. And I'm a truly believer, and I say that to my trainees as well, that we're all in training, but in different level of training. It's nobody that finished training ever. I mean, we don't. We are learning every day. Lifelong trainers. Yeah. Life- and we lifelong learn trainees. From people that actually maybe way younger than you and have less training. You learn stuff from them. I learn from the students, you know, from people who are ahead of me. So we I mean that's such a core part of I think our ethos of the podcast is constantly learning, constantly learning from not only experts, but from people in all levels of training from our tournament. I I have certainly been part of this. I have learned a lot from med students. I've learned a lot from residents. Yeah. Um, I learned one or two things from Chris, but I think overall, you know, it's been a really good uh, uh, (laughs) learning process. Hey, Cripsetters listeners, we're back with another sponsor. This is all about Freed. Freed is an AI scribe that listens, transcribes, and writes medical documentation for you. Freed was built for clinicians by their significant others. Gabby, a family med physician, and Erez, a computer engineer, are married. Erez built Freed so Gabby could stop charting over the weekends. It was one of those selfish presents that you secretly get for yourself. Freed is an AI scribe that does your medical documentation for you instantly. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions. Charting is done before your patient even walks out of the room. Freed learns your style over time, just like any human scribe, and most importantly, it is HIPAA compliant. So you can try 10 notes for free, and after that, it only costs $99 per month. Better yet, Cribsetters listeners can get $50 off that first month. So try Freed for free right now by going to getfreed.ai. That's G-E-T-F-R-E-E dot A-I. And listeners of Cribsatters can use code CRIB50 for $50 off that first month. Speaking of learning, let's let's dive into some content because I am excited to really take a deep dive into our, our topic today of obstructive sleep apnea. And so, Crystal, do you want to kind of kick us off and get us started? Absolutely. So we're actually in clinic today. We're seeing Cece Parker. She's a four-year-old who's brought in by her moms for her annual well child. Her mom says that Cece is generally a playful child, but they've noticed an increase in irritability over the past few months. One parent remarks, she just seems groggier in the morning and just naps a lot, um, especially during the day. And so first question is, how do you think about patients who present with OSA? So maybe starting with how do you define obstructive sleep apnea? And when do you start to think about it when patients present? Yeah, so there are two things, because one for the case, I wouldn't necessarily think about OSA immediately. But in general, people present with OSA, the cardinal symptom that children have, about 50% of them snoring. So parents report snoring, mouth breathing during wakefulness. They also report pauses in breathing, like apneas, but they don't report it like that, and gasping for air. Now, since pretty much everybody has smartphone, many times they show you videos in sleep so they can help you guide, okay, it looks like the person is clearly obstructing and having trouble breathing at night, and then they will prompt us to do something else about it. And my understanding, too, is a lot of the presenting symptoms can be related to trouble functioning in, in um, school-age children or almost like an ADHD-type picture. Is that uh, like the irritability and things? Are those things that you're seeing commonly? Or is that kind of a, a myth and not really a, a common presenting symptom? No, uh, that is correct. Actually, in school-age children, actually even in preschool children, you see deficit in executive functioning, 
which is like following orders or dexterity with the hands, for example, things that you can test, like ADHD-like symptoms. And in one of the seminal studies already like 20 years ago that Dr. Gozal did, they did uh, some questionnaires about sleep, if I remember correctly, and the children that had like mild to moderate ADHD symptoms, they went to have sleep studies, some of them, and, after, and those who had obstructive sleep apnea and got treated got way better. But those who had like super severe ADHD symptoms, it wasn't so much related to, let's say. But it can give you that type. And also in children, it's more frequent that they are irritable than sleepy. Like teenagers, they get an adult sleepier and things like that. But in the young kids would be the other picture. So, you know, we've, we've already thrown the word out, this sleep apnea word out. Can you sort of define that a little bit? Like if I was a parent bringing my kid in and, you know, I've heard sleep apnea. Sometimes I think of, you know, my overweight uncle who, you know, who falls asleep on the couch all the time who, and doesn't wear a mask that was given to him. I think sleep apnea. What exactly is sleep apnea and, and how does it happen and why does, how, how does it happen in kids versus the way I think about it in adults? Well, I love the question because I will tell you, but this is trademark, the way I explain it to parents. And it's very successful. <laughs> I say, imagine to, to the parents. They say, what is it? I don't get what it is. So I, this has evolved through my career. I started telling them, you know, this is a like, collapse of the throat. And then I realized nobody was picturing what it was. Okay, so now I say the following. Imagine you're sleeping quietly, super happy. And I come up with a pillow and put it on your face with pressure like this. <laughs> What would you do? Tell me what would you do? So the parents say, well, I will, f I will fight it. Yeah, and what else? I will try to remove it from, uh, from the pillow from my face so I can breathe. And what will happen, let's say, to your heart rate? Uh, well, it will go up. Would you feel like quiet? Would you feel stressed? No, I would feel stressed trying to get rid of it. I say, well, that's what happens because actually we want to open up our upper airway so we can breathe to remove that pillow. So exactly what you're telling me you know, you won't be able to breathe because I'm holding the pillow there, so your oxygen will drop, your heart rate will go up, your blood pressure may go up, you have all this sympathetic stuff, and this is happening, let's say, 10 times per hour, 15 times per hour, night after night, it's very cumulative, the things that are going to happen, you are not going to get restful. And I say, and that's apnea. So yeah, everybody understood. And the other thing that kids have is something that we call hypopnea. That is not a total blockage of the upper airway. So imagine I just put the pillow on your face, but without pressure. What would you feel? They say, well, I will try to breathe and etc. etc. Maybe I feel, well, some parents will know better, that I'm sort of rebreathing the same air, which happens. So they may accumulate carbon dioxide, for example, and things like that. And what with if that, the patient... I feel everybody oh. understands it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, but what, but uh, yeah, I could see, see my, my little patient say, well, how come I'm not walking around with a pillow on my face when I'm awake? That's another excellent question because that's why it's, <laughs> that's why it's called obstructive sleep apnea and not obstructive wakefulness apnea. So it only happens during, during sleep because you lose certain controls of your muscle tone. So then I said, when you go to sleep, for example, or you have seen your child going to sleep, how are they? Or a puppy for, for the kids. Well, they're very relaxed, etc. Well, that happens at all the levels of the muscles. And there's also something that happens when we dream, which is the period that we call REM sleep, that we're basically paralyzed except for our eyes and our diaphragm. And it's supposed to be a mechanism of protection so you wouldn't be reenacting your dreams like you're a Spider-Man or whatever Marvel superhero that would be around or whatever you want to be dreaming, right? That's a disease that you guys who treat adults see, but in kids we don't see it. So when that happens, you are more prone to have obstructive sleep apnea because all the muscles are really floppy. So if you have any stress in the upper airway, a load, for example, like a large tonsils, a large adenoids, or things, people who have um, different facial structures, right? Like they have an upper airway that's smaller because of facial structure, like craniofacial anomalies, or kids with Down syndrome, or etc., then they're more prone to have obstructive sleep apnea. The obstruction, it sounds like you mentioned, is are things like the adenoids, are things like maybe a deviated septum or, or facial abnormalities associated with the with certain um, genetic sequelae. But the, the and there's so the the pediatric anatomy is more prone to very specific obstructions 
light the adenoids? Is that is that the normal major cause of sleep apnea? Yeah, what we see mostly is adenoids and tonsils. However, the studies that have been done with MRI showed that the correlation between the, ton- the tonsils adenoidal size and the apnea hypopnea index, the obstructive version of the apnea hypopnea index, is about 50%. So only 50% you can explain by that. So it's a combination of anatomy and function. And many times when I, I am with the trainees and we see kids, for example, with, ton- with tonsils that are kissing, like grade four, and we say, do you think they will have OSA? I say, yeah, okay, let's bet. And it's a, be- it's a toss of a coin because many of them will not have. And then on the contrary, you see kids with rather small tonsils, but they have a ton of symptoms and they do have OSA because it's a matter of anatomy and function. Another question that actually not a parent asked me, one intern asked me one time. They call and they say, you know, when I talk to you, because the child was admitted with obstructive sleep apnea, um, ENT cannot do the surgery now because they're having a concomitant viral infection and the CPAP device has not arrived. And what do we do? Can the child die overnight? And that would be really rare. I mean, it can happen, but very, very rare because we, our physiology, will uh, doesn't let us go apneic forever, right? Eventually you wake up and then you will breathe or you have what we call an arousal that you're not totally awake, but your brain arouses if you want your brain awake and let you breathe. So that's what would happen in kids. So that's another question that families have because typically by the time that they get to me and they get diagnosed, it's not that they started having OSA yesterday, <laughs> most likely. You know, they're, they're telling you, it came to the attention of someone for months. No, and I think that, I mean I imagine that's uh, you know very scary for a, a parent to, yeah. to witness and see. Um, and so I love you know you mentioned the the kissing tonsils you know might be uh, a risk factor. It doesn't guarantee yeah. that the the patient's going to have OSA. And I imagine certain of the specific facies associated with genetic syndromes are risk factors. What are other major risk factors for pediatric? obstructive sleep apnea? Are there core things where it's like these um, other things that we should be, where we should be thinking of someone being at risk for OSA? Right now it's obesity as well. You know, the obesity epidemic in the past 10 or 15 years is actually, is getting worse. So we see more and more kids who are obese and who have obstructive sleep apnea because when typically, you know, you gain weight and you will see some for deposits typically in your belly, lap handles, things that you see with your eyes. But also you have fat deposit in other places that you don't necessarily see, such as your tongue, for example, your palate. So your upper air will become smaller due to that. So the, those, and then the, the the big cases of the kids with craniofacial anomalies. There are many of them, genetic syndromes, and also kids with achondroplasia, for example. Anybody who will have like midfacial hypoplasia will end up having like more restricted upper airway, and then more difficult to to compensate for that. And so maybe can I ask one more question on this before we go to the next is um. What about age distribution? Are there specific ages where most pediatric patients present with these symptoms, or is it really throughout the the child's lifespan of where it gets caught? The symptoms of the or the obstructive sleep apnea. Oh, interesting. Both. I, I assume that they would somewhat correlate. Yeah, because, maybe because maybe this, primary yeah. cares are really delayed. The symptoms in the in the small children um, many times are snoring, or as you mentioned, irritability or ADHD like situation behavioral problems, not being able to follow instructions. In the adolescence, it's more like the adult sort of thing, and they're sleepy. They, they fall asleep because actually interrupts the sleep architecture and things like that. The sleep architecture, which means the different stages of sleep that we, go through, we have to go through the night, are preserved in children. Children have obstruction back-to-back, and they don't have a lot of disruption of sleep architecture for most of the time, which is supposed to be also like a protection mechanism. We try to do bad things, but luckily our organism has our back and physiology is there to, to back us up. So that's good. And in terms of uh, presentation, typically, for example, the, the sex distribution in prepubertal children is pretty much the same. The incidence between uh, boys and girls is pretty much the same. And the main incidence that we see is between three and eight year old, which is the, the time that the chances and the adenos start to grow more. And then you have another peak in teenage years, which is mostly related to obesity. In teenage years, though, uh, males are have like two to three times more OSA than females. And that goes until menopause. And after menopause, 
they equilibrate and they have the same. I think that's a really helpful walkthrough of what to be thinking about at different ages for folks who are presenting to our clinic with, you know, these signs and symptoms of OSA. And I think for me, that brings me back to our patient is that you're, you know, taking a sleep history, you're finding out from the family that our patient CC is snoring and that there's concern about some apneic events that are happening. Maybe family has brought in a video um, that they're really concerned about. And if we're looking through her chart, we're noticing that she's in the 99th percentile for weight. 87th percentile for height, you're trying to piece this together. And as a learner, one of the questions I have for you is, how do you take that good sleep history? What kinds of things are you know going through your mind when you're thinking about, I've got a patient, I'm concerned about their sleep. What questions should I be asking in clinic? Yeah, it's very important to start with the bedtime routine. Because whenever we have someone with sleepiness, for example, we want to know, are they actually sleeping or they're supposed to be sleeping? All of us, we have done a lot of shifts right, like 30 hours, whatever hour, and it's not the same when you have a good two nights of restful sleep versus when you are post-call. You are immediately like a different person, right? So that matters. So we start with the sleep history, and that starts with the sleep environment. For example, in the case of young kids, what time do they start uh, preparing to go to bed? What's the bedtime routine? Typically, kids do have a bedtime routine. It doesn't need to be so elaborated, but what they do what time is lights out, what time that the kid falls asleep. And in the case of young children, something very important is whether they fall asleep independently or not. It's not important for the case of OSA, but actually it's important for us to know for sleep hygiene because many times, I mean, normally we wake up about one time per hour. We don't remember that, that short periods of waking. And we tend to fall asleep with the same situation that we fell asleep at the beginning of the night. You want the pillow in certain side, you sleep on your side or your back whatever that is. So for example, if the kids don't fall, don't, don't fall asleep independently, they're in the lab with the parents or with the bottle, they will wake up in the middle of the night and they will want the same situation. They cannot verbalize. They cannot say, hey mom, when is my bottle? You know, they will be crying and irritable and it's another situation that we see that is sort of an insomnia like perspective. So we ask that. We also ask a lot about their night wakings and what do the families do with the night wakings? How do we attend? To that then was the typical time of waking and also we ask whether they do take naps scheduled or unscheduled and whether that changes between the weekends and weekdays that's from the behavioral perspective that we typically start with that and then we go with the respiratory symptoms so we typically ask about snoring and actually it's important to know it's something that is occasional for example when you have a cold or is most of the nights let's say more than three times per week then we also ask about labor breathing during sleep that can uh, make us think about paradoxical breathing. And paradoxical breathing is when your chest and your abdomen are contracting asymmetrically. And why are they contracting asymmetrically? Because right now, I know this is a podcast, but we're here in video in the moment, so the four of us are going to take a deep breath all together and blow it off. Okay, so what you just did, right, your chest and your abdomen move together and that causes an increase in your airflow. Everything went together and symmetric. We took air in, we took air out, and everything moved together. When you have an obstruction, we again are trying to overcome that obstruction. So to do that, and successfully so, the abdomen starts to contract differently than the chest to make more negative pressure with the hopes of distally to open the airway. However, the upper airway it's a muscular tube, it's not a bone. So imagine that you have a straw with a muscle and I'm pulling from here with negative pressure, will further collapse it. I will not open it up. That's a very complex physiological concept that I need to explain on the video. So <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, a different like set it. of skills. That's <laughs> But, but anyway, so that's why we ask labor breathing. We want to know where the paradox is. Having said that, a small kid's paradox normally because the chest wall is more compliant. So, but let's say in older kids, you wouldn't ask, any, any of us we shouldn't be paradoxing. Or let's say kids that are older than three or four, they shouldn't be paradoxing that much. We ask for that. We, are, we ask for pauses in breathing. We ask for gasping for air. If they have seen that, like, uh, and when you're a pulmonologist, you have to do all the noises. So most of the time I have to do the noises. Like, and they say, oh, yeah, okay, they do that. 
We also ask for nocturnal enuresis in the kids that are past the age that is normal because that's also a symptom that is associated with that. For morning headaches that can point out of retention of CO2. Um, basically, sort of those are the questions that we ask. And can I ask, are you giving a pretty, pretty comprehensive behavioral and respiratory history for anyone that comes into your clinic? Or are these really people who are just saying that they're having trouble sleeping or having some, you know, oh, like, I just, if we have a patient, you know, like Cece, and, and the complaint is yeah. that there's some snoring and some irritability, um, when you go through like the bedtime routine and learn that, you know, maybe there's not a great bedtime routine. And so let's try to implement that. Is that kind of the first step or are you doing all of this while also kind of pursuing thoughts about how should we be screening and diagnosing for obstruction and OSA? Uh, both, both. Because what happens that, and we're going to get to that point, unfortunately, uh, most likely CC will not, ha- will not have a sleep study tonight on the day that she sees me, right? So there are things that we can fix in the meantime. Because, for example, if the bedtime routine is a little out of whack or is non-existent or one night is at 8 p.m. the following at 9 p.m. There's lack of consistency. There are things that we can arrange to ease also her transition when she comes to the lab. And to remove some symptoms that may be out of the way because maybe um, uh, you were telling me she's sleepy but maybe she's not sleeping the hours that she should. So it's something that we can work on while we do the other diagnosis. But pretty much for a sleep history, everybody we start with the with the behavioral sleep first. At least is the way that I train and that I teach that way. So you get to know a little bit more what's going on. That makes a lot of sense. And so let's say that we um, we have a couple low hanging fruits of things where we can implement working on uh, a bedtime routine. Um, but when we do talk to Cece, when we see her in clinic. Again, we, we confirm that there are some witnessed apnea, that, that CC is snoring. She's above, you know, 99th percentile for weight. She has kissing tonsils. You know, maybe she has some, she has the risk factors mm-hmm. that we talked about. And so we're, we're thinking high suspicion for OSA. What are your next steps? Are there, are there other things that uh, you do to, to screen for OSA? Is there lab work? Are there... Um, is there an equivalent to like a stop bang score where we should be quantifying the risk? Let's say, you know, what are your net steps for someone that you're you're sensing if you were you were a betting person, you'd you'd put a nickel down on OSA? Yeah, in in, in my case, when they already can refer to me, I will order a sleep study. In the case of a primary care pediatrician, I think we you can do because you have like 15 minutes to screen for many things. So obviously it's unfeasible that you screen for everything at the same time. But it's something that are low-hanging fruits, as you mentioned, and they could use the pediatric sleep questionnaire, the sleep-related breathing disorder part. There are not that many questions. That's something that the parents can do. Now everybody has EMR, so you can do it while they're waiting. If they have a greater than 0.33, it correlates really well with moderate obstructive sleep apnea or so. So you will know that someone that you can prioritize, for example, to have sleep study versus the next person who has a lower score, you wouldn't. There are other, uh, that's a symptom questionnaires. There are other questionnaires that are based on quality of life related to the disease. And one of that, that one of those that has been used in pediatric, pediatric successfully in research, for example, and also in the clinical practice is the OSA 18. That are 18 questions that the parents respond about how they OSA, presume OSA, can affect the quality of life of their kids and also has some scores. Uh, with that, you can, it can guide you to decide who you're going to refer to the next step if you have limited resources. I love it. And any lab work? Are we checking for elevated hemoglobin or anything like that? Are there other lab findings that might be worth? At this stage, uh, not necessarily. I mean, do, if you are really concerned that maybe someone who's hypoventilating all the night, yeah, you can do a BMP, look at the, for example, how the BMP works and things like that. But from a clinical perspective, I wouldn't necessarily order a lab now. Same, for example, with EKG, that if you think that they're going into corpulmonary or things like that, extreme cases that actually we do see sometimes, typically we order those with, with the results of the sleep study. Basically, because it's a better use of resources. Now, if you're in a clinic where you can do all that, 
honestly, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't. But... And I, I think that takes us into how do we diagno- like confirm this diagnosis of pediatric OSA? And so we've talked a lot about sleep studies. And so I was hoping that you could maybe talk to us about home sleep studies versus going into the lab for a sleep study, um, thinking about what does a sleep study entail? Yeah, so the sleep study is the gold standard, the in-lab attended. The sleep study is the gold, t- the gold standard for the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. There are many other things that have been done uh, with less success. One of those are the questionnaires, all are good at screening. For example, something that has been used also is the pulse oximetry, the nocturnal pulse oximetry, and then you apply different algorithms, and it's good for screening as well. Uh, all of those um, things that we use for screening have um, a typically a good positive predictive value, but the negative predictive value is sort of so-so. So you have to be with a grain of salt. But those that are really, really positive, for example, most likely they have obstructive sleep apnea. For example, if you do the post-oximetry and they have desaturation in clusters, granted, it's not someone with a pulmonary disease or anything like that, <clears throat> overnight, and the story is consistent, you could assume the person has obstructive sleep apnea. But the gold standard is still the in-lab attended polysomnography. That uh, study is a very intensive study. It's very nice, though. You have a lot of information on physiology. So it's 16 channels. It includes EEG channels. So you put um, six EEG leads, frontal, central, and occipital, three in each side, so it's six. Also, you have the leads in the eyes to measure the eye movements. You have a lead in the chin to measure the muscle tone in the chin because when you have REM sleep, then this drops because you're almost paralyzed. You also have a belt in your chest and in your belly to measure the movement of the thorax and the abdomen that we did, for example, when we took the deep breath. You will see all that in the plethysmography that is called the, the, the belts that you put. You also have pulse socks. You have leg leads to mention, to, to look at the movement of the legs, for example, periodic leg movements, restless sleep, that sort of things. And everything is also video recorded. We also measure entitled CO2. That is an excellent measure for ventilation. It gives you breath by breath the values of entitled CO2. And in some kids who are younger, and entitled CO2 may not be reliable, by the way, when your respiratory rate is greater than 20 or 22, because it needs certain time to plateau. So in infants that have a respiratory rate of 30 or so, we use a back, as a backup transcutaneous CO2 measurements that are good, but they're not as good as entitled CO2 because it's an average in the capillary that is measured. It's not breath by breath. It gives you a trend that typically lags like three minutes behind the entire CO2. But when it works, it works really good. Basically, that's it. And with that, off to sleep. So the first question, when I tell that to any parent, they say, I know my child will not sleep. And I'll tell them, they will. (laughs) They will because they're just tired. They will. And also because the environment and the tech that we work with typically are very child-friendly. So we try to to do this in a very child-friendly way. So they go to sleep, and then the following day, the study is scored by the technologist, and once the study is scored, with the physicians go and interpret it, and agree or disagree with the sleep architecture or the respiratory events, and etc., and come up with a diagnosis. That's the in-lab. Home sleep apnea testing has not been approved in the U.S. for children. And this is basically, and this is in the process of being reviewed because now there's a new panel looking at this. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine, um, several years ago, they had a task force to see what would be the use of home sleep apnea testing in children. At that time, at the time of the publication that's already some years old, they concluded that there was no enough data to back this up in children. So, you know, as in the U.S. health system, unfortunately, is driven many times by insurance companies. So that means that insurance companies will not pay for it because it's not backed up by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And therefore, in children, it's very difficult to do it because you may not get reimbursed. And no health system would be like super happy to say, yeah, do a lot of stuff, but (laughs) don't get reimbursed. You know, so that's what happens. Now, the good news is that with colleagues, at the time I was at, in Philadelphia, we did a, a study of home sleep apnea testing in uh, children and youth with Down syndrome. 
because they are a special population, that they have a high prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. And many times the families report duress in the labs. Many labs are not used to individuals with developmental disabilities and things like that. So we did the study and actually we found excellent correlation with what we did. And now we're doing a randomized control trial including typical and atypical neurodevelopmental children that are with typical or atypical neurodevelopment to see what would be the use. And a new task force is set in place in the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm confident that eventually it will get approved for children. Now, is it for every child? No. Some children, for example, those who require supplemental oxygen, those that are little babies, those that are very complex, as we see in pediatrics, I think that it, they will still be better served in the lab. However, a child who doesn't have any other complication may have Down syndrome, for example, but doesn't require supermectal oxygen or etc., etc., could safely have a sleep study at home if they're somebody a little bit older, I would say five or six or older, with no problem. But that hasn't been approved yet, but that's the future. Can I ask, you mentioned a lot of these mechanisms that are in the in-lab polysomnography of in-tidal CO2 and the belts and um, what, there's so much data, it seems, that's in a, a full sleep study. Maybe even taking a step away from OSA, can we go through some of the the metrics that maybe a primary care doctor should feel comfortable, you know, briefly looking at and understanding? And I think part of that is um, also seeing what are some of those other numbers and how do they provide insight into other sleep disorders or other um you know, parts of, uh, of the data that that kind of test can present? Yeah, that's a great question. As you said, there's a lot of data. We interpret the study epoch by epoch, and every epoch is 30 seconds. So imagine through the night. It's like it goes forever. It's really exquisite data that you have there. So the first that comes is the sleep architecture, meaning how long did it take for you to sleep, whether you hit different stages of sleep, and that matters because in children, for example, obstructive sleep apnea is most frequent during REM sleep. So it could be that maybe you didn't have a lot of REM during that night, and if your study is normal, it could be that maybe it was normal because you miss a big chunk of REM and then you will have back-to-back events. But if your study is super abnormal and you still have little REM, most likely it could be even more abnormal. So we could say, okay, it's, it's a way of interpreting the data. So we'll take a gross look at the sleep architecture and see there is the definition meets, um, you know, the normality of the criteria. Typically, the report will say the sleep architecture is normal because this or that, or is abnormal because the person had less REM sleep or this and that. Also matters the, uh, the arousal index. Typically, we want the arousal index in children to be less than 15. So you get to see how often did they wake up and whether this arousal index were spontaneous. That can happen in a new environment. Or they were related to the respiratory events or some, something else, like limb movements, etc. And then it goes into the respiratory, will tell you whether the patient uh, had an average respiratory rate. For example, whether they did have central apneas or not. We all do have central apneas within certain amount, it's normal. So there's nothing to be scared about, but we report that. And then we go into the obstructive events, how many obstructive apneas and hypopneas had the person. And finally, the obstructive apnea hypopnea index that is calculated based on the sum of the obstructive apneas plus obstructive hypopneas plus mixed apneas divided by the total hour of sleep. So you come with that number. Is it the most perfect index? No. It has flaws. However, it has also strengths. One of the flaws that it has is that it counts the number of apneas, but it's not the same to me. If you have an apnea that could be 10 seconds versus the next person that has back-to-back apneas of 30 or 40 seconds. Also, you need to meet certain criteria of desaturation with the hypopneas, that is 3% below your baseline. But it's not the same. Let's say you hit 3% or more and you, will, and you have certain parameters in the breathing pattern, you would qualify as hypopnea. However, it's not the same if you go down from 95 to 91 versus the next person who goes from 94 to 85 all the time. So that piece doesn't get into consideration. And also the entitled CO2 doesn't get into consideration. So it's not the same if you are retaining CO2 versus someone who's not retaining CO2. But that's what gives you. So we also report the saturation, the sat- if the saturation was normal, 
the saturation nadir, and also that uh, is super good to report also the percentage of time that the person spent with oxyhemoglobin saturation less than 90. That typically would like it to be like 2% or less. I mean, that would be okay. You have little dips, but someone who is all the time with no cardiac disease, with no lung disease, it makes you wonder that it's a case of more severity. Uh, and then we also report about the ventilation, for example, if the entrada CO2 was normal, if there were periods of hypercapnia, if this were mild, moderate, severe, and they correlated with respiratory events or no. Then also we report about the heart rate. We also have an EKG during the sleep study, but it's only one lead. So it doesn't allow you to go into all details if you want, and also because many of us were not the expert EKG readers. But m many times, you know, we can say that someone is having like a blockage or things like that, and then refer them for a full EKG. Or we can send the, the screenshot of the EKG to the cardiologist and say, you know, this is going on. I mean, what can we do about it? So we pick up stuff. And also then is the periodic lead movements during sleep that uh, when those are above five is uh, per hour are considered abnormal. They have to meet certain criteria. They're typically associated in children with a decreased levels of ferritin. So if that's the case, we request the referring provider to check the ferritin levels, etc., etc. So it's a very comprehensive data that we have. And eventually, you... eventually, someone can have a seizure that is subclinical that you could see in the EEG and the person not necessarily is having like abnormal movements. Oh, I was just going to ask um, when you're talking about periodic limb movements, like how, I f how often do you see that? I feel like it's probably more often than people think because uh, I, I, I have four boys and at some point they've all crawled in bed with me and I've been definitely kicked in the face and stuff like that. So I feel like, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's pretty common more than what people think. Yeah, it is it's more common than what people think. I don't remember exactly the prevalence, but I would say that when we see, and most of the time, you know, some people are referred due to that, but many times we find that someone comes for something and the study may be otherwise normal respiratory wise, and they end up having periodic moments that are a little bit elevated and we check the ferritin and it's lower. And we treat them with, with iron, and they go better. Let's, let's say that, uh, again, we have, high, CC, we have a high suspicion. We send for a sleep study. And there's always a nice like, interpretation the very kind sleep physician provides. But if I want to get a better understanding, you know, what number would I look at without going really deep? Is it just the AHI? And if so, what's the, the cutoff in a pediatric um, patient where I can say like, oh, you know, you have an AHI of two that meets criteria, but it's slow or, you know, low or like 14 where it's, oh my goodness, I think this is, you know, can you kind of walk yeah. us through the the really big takeaways that someone who's not a sleep medicine specialist, but, you know, who could still look at this and get some decent information to, to think, yes, confirmed diagnosis or inconclusive or, oh boy, is this OSA like... You need to look at the obstructive apnea hypopnea index first. So typically up to two would be considered sort of normal. However, there's a lot of literature that if you have symptoms, you may benefit from treatment. And for that, I invite you to read the last edition of JAMA, where we published a study that is the pediatric adenotonsillectomy trial for snoring. First author, Susan Redline, that was done at seven centers in the U.S. It took seven years to complete, and we randomized 460 children to early adenotonsillectomy versus a year of watchful waiting, and all of them, they had mild sleep disorder breathing, meaning an obstructive apnea hypopnea in the less than three. So you can look at that. But for this one, okay, so we need to look at that. Less than two, I would say, okay, you can do watchful waiting if there are no other symptoms. If the child is very symptomatic, I will still refer for treatment. Then between two and five is considered mild, but the big disclaimer here that this is based on expert opinion and not necessarily on outcomes. So personally, I do think that uh, five to seven, if we don't have significant desaturation and the child is otherwise, otherwise normal, we could still do watchful waiting for some time and repeat the study in six months to a year and see where we're at before deciding treatment. Then for most people, between 5 and 10 is moderate. I think we can be a little bit more lax with that as well. But if someone has definitely, as I mentioned, 7 or more is someone that will require treatment, you will refer to 
ENT if they have a large tonsils or adenoids. And then greater than 10 is what is considered severe. I think it also depends what is your saturation nadir, if the person is hypoventilating, etc. Because it's not the same, for example, this may be more complex, but let's say you have an obstructive apnea hyponia in the dog 6. The person is saturated down to 75, spent 5% of the time with saturation below 90 and was also hypoventilating. It's not the same that, that someone that has an obstructive apnea hypomnia index of 11 with a saturation nadir of 92 and never had hypoventilation. That's, that's such a great pearl. I feel like those yeah. have always kind of stuck me up and I always probably put too much emphasis on the AHI and that's such a, that made so much sense of um, that the AHI is kind of, the, it seems like their core part yeah, of the it's study. It's the first one to put, look at, but then context. you need to look at the others. Overall, if you need to, to manage resources. Talking a little bit more about some of those results we get with that sleep study, I was recalling a, a recent, um, and unfortunately this was about an adult patient, but I, I, I had a sleep provider talking about the RDI on this on a study. Uh, is RDI used in in children, and are there similar cutoff criteria when trying to make diagnosis of a um, We use the obstructive apnea hypopnea index in the in lab attended polysomnography. Some home sleep apnea testing. That by the way, that's a different topic. The different types. Type 1 of a sleep apnea testing would be the in-lab polysomnography with all the bells and whistles. Type 2 is sort of the same but unattended at home. And that's what we use for, for the research that I mentioned. And then type 3 is without the EEG leads, they only have the belts. And then type 4 are others that do, for example, only pulse socks or tonometry or something else. And most of those report the RDI which is the respiratory disturbance index that is not necessarily the same as the obstructive hypopnea index, but it cannot be correlated one-to-one -one because those, th those measurements, they don't have the same airflow measurements that we do have in the obstructive and hypopnea index. So I think in adults, you may see more the RDI because they do more of home and sleep apnea testing. One of the things that you would mention is trying to manage resources and something that we're often finding in pediatric, you know, clinics around the country is that sometimes there are disparities in how we can access care. And I think that's probably no different when it comes to accessing pediatric sleep studies. Here at the Cribsiders, we want to make sure that all children have access to care and thinking about ways that we as pediatricians can help that mission. Um, if you speak to maybe some of the disparities that you see around OSA or including trying to get kids access to pediatric sleep studies. Well, those are huge. And actually, I do have an R01 grant studying at, at pediatric health disparities in SDB. So I know, I know what that I wanted about it. But actually, there are groups that every minoritized group are overrepresented in sleep disorder breathing. They do have more sleep disorder breathing compared to the white counterparts. And also, their severity seems to be more. And the percentage that they resolve with treatment appears to be less. And there's a myriad of um, hypotheses what that could be because, you know, race or any minority status is a socio-ecological construct. So it depends of things like where you live, for example, the pollution that you may have or aeroallergens that you may, may have due to your living condition, that your neighborhood, for example, your neighborhood is noisy or etc. You have a big light on top of your from the street, in, on top of your bedroom. It's totally different than you live in the suburbs in a farm and everything is nice and quiet and you have your own room. You know there are different stories there. So yes, those disparities exist. Also, the disparities to access they exist a lot because sleep studies are expensive. And many times depend on the insurance that the family have, how much they have to pay for reimbursement. And for many families, the copay that they have to do, meaning families that are not in, in full medical assistance, you know, they have it harder because they may have some insurance, but actually they need to pay for higher copays than those that have better insurance. So many times they don't go to the study because they just cannot afford it. Or also they may face issues with the other kids at home. If you have several kids and you need to come with an adult and that adult is you or the other parent or a close family member, it creates certain duress for the families. Also, you are more prone and not having a nine-to-five job. Maybe you have a job that is some sort of service and you need to work longer hours. When I was in Philadelphia, I did see a lot of um, Hispanic patients work easily 16 hours per day, Monday to Sunday. 
If they work in a restaurant situation, for example, they would do two shifts easily. Their day off could be any day, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever that was. And they don't have so much to say because of the situation that they live in. So yes, all those are critical. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's important for uh, uh, kind of what we do is kind of really identifying that there are these disparities to, to access and, and treatment across every topic we talk about. And uh, it seems like, especially when it comes to sleep quality, sleep um, disturbances, you know, supports to, to get some of these more invasive testing, um, it really is uh, exacerbated by a lot of these other health disparities that we see. Um, yeah, and if you think about, for example, we're talking about bedtime routines. Let's say if you have like a, a job that is 9 to 5 or so, almost like you may be home at 6, everybody have dinner, you have time for the routine, it's something nice, it can be me time with the kids, etc. Let's say the same person, but you have like two jobs, you get jo at home at 10. Do you really want to go? <laughs> First, yeah. you're sort of past the bedtime yeah. routine and there are other level yeah. of stressors that existed, you were waiting for the bus, it's snowing or, or here that it may be like very hot in the summer and your the bus doesn't come that often, immediately you have different level of things that are happening that are due to disparities. Everything takes longer to accomplish when people have less resources and it's not because people are not smart or anything it's just because imagine if i have to take the bus to work it will take me like 90 minutes because i will have to work to walk like 30 minutes to get to the bus stop then i have to wait when the bus arrives and then they stop like in every corner it's different every takes everything takes longer to get done going to the supermarket etc etc I think that's a really helpful reminder for us to remember where our patients are coming from exactly. and all the things that we can do to try to move care forward for our patients in so many different ways while acknowledging that it can be really difficult um, for people to sometimes get access to what they need. And so thinking about our case, Cece Parker, we think, okay, she's got OSA and now her parents are like, okay, now that we know that she has obstructive sleep apnea, what are we going to do to address this problem? So what are some of the initial treatments that we think for patients who are confirmed to have obstructive sleep apnea? Well, typically the first line treatment recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics is adenotonsillectomy in those that have a large tonsils and adenoids. That would be the first one. And actually it's one of the most frequent uh, surgeries performed in the United States, I believe between a half a million per year are performed. Also, we would like that to be done by the pediatric ENT, and it could be done in the outpatient setting most of the time, and then this is where the importance of the sleep study comes here, because if a child qualifies as severe obstructive sleep apnea, it's better to have it done in the hospital setting, so they can be observed in an ICU just in case something goes wrong, because it's someone who's been having these saturations forever, so may have other complications compared to the person that doesn't, that they can have it in the patient setting. So that would be the first line of treatment. In the case of kids who are severe, and in ideal world, everybody should have like a repeat sleep study to see how, whether they resolve or not. Obviously, I understand that's impractical. And if the case were, was mild to moderate, I would be less prone to say, oh, you totally need to have it. It would be like recommended. But if the case was severe, it matters because we want to know how much the kid resolved. And also because kids who are severe many times tend to be obese and obese kids also tend to resolve less. So in that case, we need to think about second line of treatment. And one of those is positive airway pressure which is CPAP or BiPAP, depending on the case, that is absolutely doable in children. It takes time, like everything, and it takes the village, you know, the family to be involved and the support that they need to do it. But they do it, and we have a lot of uh, success with them being adherent to, to CPAP. There are other treatments depending on the particular situation. For example, if they have a restricted maxilla, the maxilla is, is too narrow, for example, for the mandible. They can have an orthodontic treatment to help with that. But uh, most of the time is what we do. And one of the treatment interventions that I, I've seen with a little bit of evidence for, I guess, mild cases is things like intranasal fluticasone, especially ones that have presumably just enlarged adenoids or inflamed adenoids. Is that something that is in practice 
often used or helpful or what are your thoughts on intranasal flu tissue? I just love the yeah. idea of treating irritability, ADHD symptoms with intranasal flu um, <laughs> It is used more than it should. Mm. Okay. It has interesting. Role, interesting. But, uh, for example, I, um, this is a study that, that my mentor who, who died, unfortunately, some years ago had started. Oh, a trial of intranasal corticosteroids versus uh, fluticasone versus placebo in kids with obstructive sleep apnea with a range of uh, 2 to 30 in the OHI. So I, I continued the study after she died and we published it like a year and a half ago. And we didn't find um, differences in the main outcomes. There were all the neurobehavioral things. They were the same between the two groups. The OHI, all the stuff, they, they didn't change significantly between the two groups. However, what did change with fluticasone were the symptoms. The symptoms meaning of nasal congestion, for example, the nose questionnaire, the OSA chin improvement, things like that. But the meat, if you want, the Connors rating scale from teacher, parents, or the brief that actually were measuring executive function with that, or testing that the kids do to, to see where, with the dexterity like the pegboard and things like that, all that were the same between the two groups. So if you ask me, I would say it has a role. It, you know, it can treat the symptoms related to, to the nose or it can treat maybe snoring, but don't expect that it will treat obstructive sleep apnea. Love it. Great pearl. And one more, you mentioned um, a couple of times when we were talking about diagnosis for kind of mild, moderate is um, watchful waiting. Can you talk a little bit about what that entails? Yeah. That's a great question because people think that watchful waiting is okay. Bye, see you later. You know, mm. <laughs> the, the part of watchful we're missing, right? So uh, it, it, it implies that also the family needs to report to us how the symptoms are, are changing or improving within the period that we decide to watch the kid. That can be six months, 12 months or so. So many times we can ask the, the, uh, the nurses working with us to give like a call to the family, like every two months or so. We can see them like every six months in clinic without doing nothing and see whether things improve. Because also remember that we are all, I mean, the kids are growing. So their upper airway may be growing to, in, during, during that period of six months and one year and whatever was obstructing is obstructing less. So in that case, if, if things um, if parents report, for example, that the symptom persists, etc., etc., I would repeat the sleep study after six months to a year to see where they're at. But you could see that some kids resolve. And we learned that thanks to the Childhood Adenotronsilectomy Trial, the CHAT study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, that they randomized kids with obstructive sleep apnea with an index between 2 and 30 to early adenotronsilectomy compared to watchful waiting for seven months. And the watchful waiting and the adenotronsilectomy both improve. And that was something new, actually, that changed practice. Now they improve more with the surgery. The watchful waiting improved less. But those that were in defense, for example, that were four or five, at seven months, some of them may be within the normal range. So that helped us understand that maybe we don't need to rush. Before this study, we were sending like pretty much everybody to, to adenotronsilectomy, creating chaos as well, because, you know, it's more time for the OR, a lot of things that need to happen, increased cost, etc., etc. So that's the beauty of clinical research that I like a lot because I think we can inform fastly about clinical practice. And and one other questions are about some of the oral devices, or that there is, um, especially in adults, this these series of devices that it, it seems unclear if there's strong evidence for these, or or dentists maybe sometimes recommend specific devices. Is that something we should be considering for our patients? Not really, unless for, well, someone who has a narrow maxilla, I think the rapid maxillar expansion could have a role in those specific persons. But uh, the other oral appliances haven't been well studied in children. The issue is that you have to think that anything can really affect the morphology of the face and the end of growth. So I would be very cautious to see which one could be really used in, in children if we do have other measures of, of treatment that are more effective. And also because they change so much, so it's difficult to... For example, sure. a CPAP, it's a CPAP. It will give you positive pressure. You will extend the upper airway. So whenever I come with my pillow, your upper airway will be open. But the oral appliances, the one, for example, you and I create one and then Crystal and Chris come up with their own oral appliances will work differently. So, What about, um, say, 
a Inspire implant. Would that, would that, have they looked at that in children? It is approved for children with Down syndrome down to age 10 but for, not for typically developing children yet. Now the data, it's good, but like anything else, it's not like a miracle. For example, if they use the obstructive apnea hypopnea index as main outcome, as they did in the first study, they showed that the average reduction was 50%. So it, for someone, for example, who has, I don't know, an obstructive apnea hypopnea index of 80 going to 40, yeah, it's good, but it still has significant obstructive sleep apnea. So they may need to do something else, maybe they need less blood pressure, etc. Also required um, to be adjusted a little bit because you know the tongue protrudes. So at the very beginning people wake up a lot with that. It's like every so often you're doing like for the people listening and mimicking that you're putting on your tongue like a like a frog, like every <laughs> like every one minute. So, yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, I'm not sure how this is gonna come across. <laughs> you see, I got in the mood of the radio. Describe it, but, <laughs> uh, but that's what happens. And now they're doing a, a continuation of the of the first study of Inspire, and now the outcome would is neuro neurobehavioral outcomes because basically that was gonna matter. Right, not only the number. When I explain to the family the number, they have a sense, but what matters to them is how the daytime functioning would be. I think we are reaching a point where, you know, we're wrapping up and we're thinking about all the big things that are happening with OSA. And I think the big takeaway for me is that this can really impact the care that I provide to children and making sure that I'm, you know, managing their OSA. And one of the questions that I have is that if I'm seeing a child in clinic who has OSA, but let's say they have an indication for some separate surgery, are there any special conversations that I need to be having either with a specialist or with a family about perioperative management for kids with OSA? Well, if they're having a neotonsillectomy, it's important to put it in the context. It's a surgery that is very commonly done. It does have some complications that are rare, but they do exist. For example, pain. Many times kids uh, have pain and they cannot eat well, so they need to be in the hospital a little bit longer. They can be dehydrated due to that. Also, they can have bleeding. Like most of the time can be like a little minor bleeding, but occasionally it can be a large bleeding that requires some surgical intervention. So it's important to know that. It's overall in centers that they do a lot of procedures because, you know, it's rare, but the more you do, you will hit that. So it's important to know that. And let's say the, you know, the surgery isn't for their tonsils, and let's say it's just for any other surgery that's happening. Is there anything differently that you would do for I a mean, child who has OSA? When you're having for surgery it? for whatever reason and you have obstructive sleep apnea? Correct. Okay, well, if you, have, if, you, if you were treated for your obstructive sleep apnea, you should be fine. However, in kids, for example, who use CPAP or BiPAP for obstructive sleep apnea, typically we ask them to, or we communicate with the physician, with the anesthesia team, and say that they should be extubated after the surgery to the CPAP or BiPAP, because you, anesthesia affects also the neuromotor control of the upper airway. So after you wake up from a surgery, you may not regain total control of the upper airway. You may have episode of obstruction. So it's something that we recommend. Great. Beautiful in-hospital pearl. Um, this has been great. Uh, conscious of time, you know, um, I would love to ask, you know, looking back, we've talked about all, everything from risk factor screening diagnosis to various treatments. What are some of the big takeaway uh, items that you want to make sure our li- listeners uh, leave with when talking about OSA? Yeah, it would be important for them to to know that as part of the sleep history, they need to know sort of the bedtime routine, that sort of stuff that is short. Also to recognize that it's something that's really frequent and have it on the back of their mind. Maybe not everybody needs sleep study now. Overall, if you're in primary care, you chances are you will see the patient again. So that allows you to buy some time to decide what is the bedtime to, best time to send the family for a sleep study. But it's important that... Um, that they shouldn't, you know, be too cavalier about it. Like, oh, you know, you're snoring, then there's nothing. You know, putting two and two together and think that actually it's something that can impact the life of the child long term. Because if you, when you're little and your executive functioning is affected and you're not learning what you should learn there, based on my own experience, when you didn't learn when you, when you were a child, yes, it's difficult to learn it after, right? So that's the moment that you wear like sponges. And the other thing, you know, sleep is free, but it's affected by poverty. 
I, I love so, that, that that's been a core point. It, made, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's not for, to take it for granted, you know, it, it's really affected. For all the listeners out there that are aspiring uh, triple board pediatric, pediatric pulmonology <laughs> and sleep medicine uh, physicians, anything that you'd like to plug, any resources that you'd like to share or anything we should point our listeners to to check out? Yeah, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has resources and actual grants for people who are in medical school and are thinking about a career in sleep medicine. I believe it's our 10th K per year. They need to apply. It's on the website. And also there are opportunities to for the pipeline at the level of the American Thoracic Society and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine to invite them to the conferences. There are some grant opportunities for them. They could go to the national conference, be involved in research, and just go with it. You know, we it's all awesome. sleep. So it's something that you should be curious about what happens when you when your brain is theoretically off, but it's not really off. So that's something important. That's for me, for example, that was a big driver that I wanted to know what happened then. Yeah, I love that. I, uh, it's, an, it's an amazing human uh, thing that, that we all do. And so we appreciate your taking the time to kind of dive into this one uh, uh, tip of the iceberg of sleep. And so we'll have to have you back sometime to talk about other sleep disorders or even normal sleep. But this has been incredibly helpful. Lots of great pearls, lots of great discussions. Thank you, Ignacio, so much for, for coming and for, for joining us here on the Cribsiders. Thank you so much. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website, thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsetters at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Crystal Nora, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Crystal Kamtochuku Nora. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you, and good night. And for those of you who've made it all the way to an end, here is another poem generated by AI. The title is Whispers in the Night. In night's embrace where children softly lie, a shadow lurks unseen yet felt in breath. In silence deep, a struggle against a stealthy death. With tender care, the healer's art draw nigh, unveiling truths that silent lips belie. In whispered dreams, a cure takes shape beneath. Now breathe, they deep, as peaceful slumber seethe. In dreams once marred, now sings the lullaby. See you guys.